Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're going to give ourselves a second look, check out a new angle, and be ready to dust off the lenses because we're looking to remodel and restore and work with what we have. Don't like where you are in life, what you're doing, or what you've become? Before you throw in the towel in an attempt to start over, let's look at some positive changes you can make which will have a huge impact on your life and your livelihood. Time flies, and before you know it, you've made one too many questionable choices or have put off today what you intended to do tomorrow, or the next day, or the next day. And here you are thinking, wow, I'm really here. But the thought of getting back on track or there, anywhere, seems unfathomable. So here we will sit and dream about something more. No way. How could we possibly be satisfied with that? Ready to get out the hammer and nails and make plans to reimagine what we have? I developed the name Phase 2. Well, maybe not created it into the human language, but I adopted it for my coaching practice. Phase two, reimagining life. This is because I'm convinced there is another phase and then another. You get a chance to continue your life living differently. You don't get a new life, but that doesn't mean once you've started in a certain direction that you have to stay on that path. You don't have to hit a life-changing roadblock to want to change your mind and your direction. It's your choice. Isn't that amazing? You have choices. Now and all the way through your life, there is only one phase that is destined. The rest is up to you. Some might look at that statement as if I'm wearing rose-colored glasses and am in no way affected by the real world. You're half right. I do wear rose-colored glasses, not because I'm insensitive or unaware, but because I choose to. It's my choice. By looking for the good first, I see the good first. I realize our environment, how we were raised, our family dynamics, and a host of other things directly impact what comes easy to us or difficult for us. But it stops there. We have choices. On a large or small scale, we have choices that will dramatically shape our lives. As a life coach, I find ways to navigate the future instead of being stuck by the limitations of our past. This could include visiting past traumas to release our guilt and shame so that we can move on, but the concentration is in the phase two. Maybe we could all use a little time in rose-colored glasses. A journalist at the Donaldsonville News thinks so. In their article, everyone should have a pair of rose-colored glasses. We all know that seeing something through rose-colored glasses means that you see it as better than it really is. And I'm here to tell you that seeing the world through rose-colored glasses really does make it look better. The reds are more incredibly red, the greens lush, and the blues truly electric. I searched the internet for the origin of this idiom and had trouble finding it. Apparently, nobody who writes about rose-colored glasses has bothered to actually look through them. 
One curious and unfortunate suggestion is that the term comes from the use of goggles on chickens to keep them from pecking feathers off each other. An article about chicken glasses at ask.com states rose-colored lenses are thought to prevent a chicken wearing them from recognizing blood on other chickens, which may increase the tendency for abnormal, injurious behavior. Wow. They were mass-produced and sold throughout the United States as early as the beginning of the 20th century. Whatever its origin, the act of wearing rose-colored glasses makes me think about things in a more helpful light and puts me in an even more pleasant frame of mind. In fact, a University of Toronto study provides direct evidence that our mood literally changes based on the way our visual system filters our perceptual experience. Suggesting that seeing the world through rose-colored glasses is more a biological reality than a metaphor. The study found that under positive moods, people may process a greater number of objects in their environment, which sounds like a good thing, but it can also be a result of a distraction. Good moods enhance the literal size of the window through which we see the world. The upside of this is that we can see things from a more global and integrative perspective. The downside is that this can lead to distraction on critical tasks and require narrow focus. Bad moods, on the other hand, may keep us more narrowly focused, preventing us from integrating information outside of our direct attention or focus. Dr. Jill Bolt-Taylor, a renowned neuroscientist and best-selling author who had to rebuild her brain after a stroke, came up with the 90-second rule when dealing with emotional pain. She says to allow yourself 90 seconds to dive into your emotional suffering. Rant, rage, cry, or journal to move that energy through you, and then move on and focus on something that is positive and life-affirming. According to Taylor, it takes 90 seconds for stress hormones to regulate after we experience a negative feeling. However, if we continue to entertain that same negative thoughts that are stimulating the same negative emotions, then we get stuck in the same negative psychological response cycle, like a hamster will. So tired of acting like a hamster? I bought myself some rose-colored glasses. Wearing them is now a permanent part of my solution to achieving a better, more positive state of mind. And to those who would scoff that wearing them is impractical, unrealistic, and even Pollyanna, I have to say you're wrong because at this very moment, wearing my rose-colored glasses, I'm not stressed and I'm not angry. I'm not even remotely miffed. In fact, I'm feeling downright terrific. So good that even if someone were to knock me down, step on my face, twist my words, secretly record my conversations, and tread on my blue suede shoes, my world would still look bright and rosy. Are you tired of playing the victim in the woe is me game? Then take it from this glad, happy, ocular, fashion-forward fellow. Wearing rose-colored glasses isn't about choosing a life in a constant state of denial, but it's about choices. It's about changing our attitudes so we can be happier, more productive, work better with others, and enjoy living life to its fullest.
For me, I had to admit that I had a need for an overhaul. Admitting failure or a need for help can be one of the hardest acts of self-love you can do. I don't know about you, but I can justify, make excuses, and sell myself on just about anything. I'm a sucker when it comes to myself. All to my own detriment, of course, but the narrative in my head doesn't see it that way. So first things first, own up to it. Whatever it may be. You don't have to post it on Facebook or make a grandstand in a public place. Just take ownership and responsibility. Depending on what it is, you might have to take the other first step and admit that you're powerless over it and that it's ruining your life. You determine the first, but it's important to be honest with yourself. Once you've done that, it's time to move on with action. This is the fun part getting on track, and moving ahead. Maybe every part of that doesn't sound like a party, but there is cause for celebration. You're becoming more, and that's thrilling. At SoulSalt, I found seven actionable strategies to get back on track, starting today. We all lose our footing sometimes. A string of setbacks can come tumbling down one after another, It can feel difficult to pick yourself back up and keep going. Having the right strategies in place will help you pull yourself out of a funk and get your momentum of success going again, even when life has pulled you off course. Here are some powerful strategies to get you back on track towards creating the life you want and determining how to prioritize your life in a way that lets you focus on what really matters. Number one. Define your values. When life doesn't go as planned, you can't always choose your situation, but you can choose how you react. Choosing the best way forward requires knowing who you are and what's important in your life. When you feel like you've gone off the rails and all your options feel wrong, like you've lost your flow, To get it back, you have to start doing things that feel right again and decisively moving forward. The solution to this indecision is to start thinking about values. Living true to yourself, aligning your actions with your core values feels right. It's what gets you back into your flow of your life. Taking the time to define your core values provides a source of guidance and direction you will always have with you. Anytime you find yourself adrift, you can always make a decision consistent with your inner guiding principles. So if you feel untethered, this is the first thing to check. Ask yourself, how far off are my current actions from what I stand for? Living true to yourself starts here. Getting out of a rut does as well. Number two. Take a step back to gain perspective. When we fall off track, we often use brain power to rationalize our way to a solution. That makes perfect sense, but there's a difference between deep thinking and overthinking. Deep thinking looks for a solution and closure, whereas overthinking is chaotic with no solution in end or sight. That comes from Dr. Carolyn Leaf, a cognitive neuroscientist. Sometimes we get caught in a cycle of overthinking that can interfere with our ability to solve problems or see the big picture. 
This type of limited thinking can throw us off track. It's one thing to try and solve a problem. It's an entirely different ballgame to overanalyze to the point of anxiety or panic. It's also pretty darn hard to identify a freight train when you stand nose to nose with a locomotive. When you give yourself a little space, you gain the ability to see the cause of discomfort more clearly. Stepping back can help identify what went wrong. By finding the what, you can see the how to make things right. Step back, step away, step to the side. This could look like taking a break to remove yourself from the situation or switching your focus away from the problem that's stressing you out. Take a day off or a week, if you can manage it, and give yourself permission to do something fun and creative. Number three, recognize the deeper issue. I wish I had $500 for every time things went wrong after following steps one and two. The issue stood out like a signpost flashing neon messages of, you need to fix this, something needs your attention. Still, I wasn't always ready to do what needed to be done. Making changes for the better often means taking a good, hard look in the mirror. And that takes a lot of honesty and courage to face those underlying issues. We tend to think that working harder, being more productive, or throwing money at a problem will get us through a slump. Some problems simply don't have an easy fix. Unfortunately, sometimes the solution requires deeper work. It could mean a painful solution like therapy. It could mean a big scary change like leaving a toxic relationship or workplace. It could mean facing something you've tried to avoid looking at like a health issue building up, whether it's physical or psychological. No amount of productivity and focus can help you try to avoid dealing with the deeper issue. If you want to change, you need to find a better way. It's time to address what you've been ignoring. Things may have gotten off track, so do something about it. Talking with someone is a good place to start. Number four, talk to someone. Sometimes you just need to express the thoughts and emotions in your head to feel better. In Psychology Today, clinical psychologist Leon Seltzer discusses how venting frustrations, anxiety, anger, or sadness often provide beneficial cathartic release. Your frustrations feel more rightful and legitimate. Simply sharing your pain with another person can provide immediate feelings of relief and comfort, even if it's just to be heard. Once you feel that relief, your mental energy, positivity, and creativity can return. And that's when you start thinking about solutions. Get some compassionate airtime with someone who can hold space. We need to dump it all out there and hear ourselves talk. In the process, we reframe, redirect, and refocus on what to do next. I will give a caveat about finding someone to talk to. As I always say, make sure you gain permission. If you have something to vent, make sure that you ask for time and space to do that. When the other person can really pay attention to what you're dealing with and be emotionally ready to handle that. Sometimes if we just dump our emotions on someone and they're off on a great day, having a wonderful time in their head, 
you can really derail them so it can be counterproductive. So just find a trusted friend, ask for some time and space, and be willing to adhere to their schedule on that. Number five, conduct a self-audit. People tend to develop behavior patterns that they repeat, often without realizing it. By noticing your own bad habits, you may recognize how to pull yourself out of a rut and get back on track. Get out a piece of paper and write it all down. Ask yourself, when has this happened before? How is this time similar to the other times? Is this indeed a pattern or is it a singular incidence? How many times a year does this pattern play out? Of course, when you've gotten off track, it's not always self-inflicted. You also have patterns in how you respond when life throws a wrench into your plans. You can apply these same questions to audit your patterns of reacting to change and crisis. Are you proactive or reactive? Do you overreact and panic or shut down and do nothing? Share your notes with a trusted advisor. Ask them to share their impressions. If you sense the cause of things going awry is a bigger deal than just a coincidence, find a professional like a coach or therapist who can assist you in breaking harmful patterns. Turn things around with support. You don't need to go at it alone. After all, if you could have turned things around on your own, you probably would have already done that. Number six, do a little self-coaching. A coach's job is to help you achieve the goals and outcomes that will bring success, fulfillment, and purpose to your life. Individualized coaching is out of reach for many people. The good news is that you can do much of this work on your own. It starts with looking inward and asking some tough questions. Getting your thoughts on a page through activities like journaling can help you gain clarity on what you want out of life. From there, it's a matter of choosing where to focus and leveraging your strengths to achieve it. Take yourself through a self-coaching session to start defining your vision of success. Find a quiet space and clear your head. Write down your thoughts on the following questions. What am I really going for? What's my goal? How come this is my goal? What sort of person do I want to become? What kind of value is this upset offering me? In a month from now, how do I want things to change? Why do I want this? Does it align with my core values? How so? What is possible now that I know these things? And what happens next? Number seven, adopt a learning mindset. Life isn't a game to win or lose. When you play on the field of life and throw a few punches, you'll stumble sometimes. Through that journey, we evolve and realize new potentials in ourselves that we never thought existed. 
Rather than seeing the situation as a failure, look at it as a learning opportunity. When you found yourself way off course, look around and see what there is to learn. And when you find yourself feeling off track, you don't have to do it alone. We learn so much from other people. Where do you get your information? In a book? Hey, guess what? Someone wrote that book. In a news article? Hey, someone wrote that or produced it as well. We learn from each other. And whether you're listening to their story about themselves or hearing their encouragement towards you, you're learning. Michael Jackson wrote a song called Man in the Mirror, which basically says, you want to see change in the world? That starts with you. Want to know what's even better than looking in a mirror? Opening up to a trusted friend. Ask them to help you see what you can't see when you look in the mirror. Maybe you're overshadowed by guilt and shame. You can't see your beauty because you're so busy pointing out your negative. I have an exercise I do with the women in rehab where we verbalize what we're proud of and what we love about ourselves. I always encounter more than one woman who can't complete this exercise because they don't love, let alone like, anything about themselves. And with that, they can't muster up one thing they're proud of. I let them know, okay, that's where we're starting from. I also encourage them to be open to listening and willing to embrace what others have to say about them. You can do the same thing. Ask someone you trust to help you see what you can't. And then just listen graciously. Zuli Rain enlightens us with why your brain doesn't let you believe the compliments you receive. Sometimes it's hard to accept the good about yourself. Zuli says, I have a real issue. When people say nice things about me, I don't believe them. It doesn't matter if it's about how I look, a recent accomplishment, an idea I had, or even just on cookies I baked. When people compliment me, I think they're lying or trying to manipulate me somehow, or that they mean well but don't recognize that what I've done is actually not that good. When someone says to me, wow, your dress looks amazing today, I deflect it. I'll say, oh, thanks. I don't know. I guess I like it. It's easy to be active in, which is the most important thing. Cue the classic. Thanks. It has pockets. My brain will dwell instead on a time when someone told me my dress sense was terrible. This might sound familiar to some of you. The ability to overlook 50 positive comments in favor of the one negative that someone said to you once 10 years ago? It's so easy to believe in, linger on, internally reflect on the negative even when it's overwhelmingly outweighed by the positive. Why does that happen? Why do so many of us struggle to believe good things about ourselves? Science tells us it's a loop. There are three factors happening here, feeding into one another endlessly to make it hard to accept compliments. Low self-esteem, cognitive dissonance, and high expectations. It goes like this. You don't think much of yourself for whatever reason. Maybe it's imposter syndrome, where you don't truly believe you belong. Maybe you're only being valued for one aspect 
for most of your life, like being smart. So it's impossible to see your worth in others, like being a good listener. Maybe you're continually comparing yourself to others and coming up short in your own estimation. Either way, you have low self-esteem. So when someone compliments you, this jars with the truth you hold about yourself. It's uncomfortable for your mind because you're faced with two prospects. One, you're wrong about yourself. Or two, they're lying. You can't simultaneously believe you suck and believe someone else when they say that you don't. So while your brain is working furiously to justify the two things concurrently, your mouth will pop open and justify things to the other person who just said something nice about you. That test result? Oh, I just got lucky. My promotion? I guess the stars aligned. That meeting? Good thing they asked the right questions that I knew the answers to. Just like that, the pressure's off. This plays into the last factor, high expectations. Because you have low self-esteem, because you struggle to believe other people when they're kind to you, you want to shrug off any expectations as soon as possible. So you respond to the situation in a way that lets you off the hook if you don't succeed next time. This relieves a bit of the pressure and anxiety you feel when someone compliments you. But it's unpleasant to constantly be second-guessing every nice thing people say. Sometimes people are just nice. It's good for our brains to be told we're good. We've established why this thing happens. Because we don't believe in ourselves, and it's more comfortable for our brains when nobody else believes in us either. But it's healthy when, instead of forever dwelling on negative feedback, we linger on the positive. It turns out that when you push those positive memories away, you're actually losing the ability to experience happiness over positive remarks. You can tell they're positive, but there's no warm glow of pride accompanying them. Research showed that people who routinely dismissed positive comments actually had a harder time remembering the level of positivity of the feedback, more so than people who accepted them to begin with. It's worth it to accept compliments, both for your memory and your mental health in the long run. But it can feel boastful to accept that something you've done is good. Who wants to be the narcissist who says, yeah, I'm aware, when someone compliments you? But even when you're just trying to say thanks, it feels like pulling teeth. The urge to justify, dismiss, or qualify your success in some way is overwhelming. You want to buckle and say that it wasn't you, that you just got lucky, that you won't do so well the next time. Zuli said, I'm like that, so I know it sucks. Obviously, I'd rather just believe the other person, say thanks, and move on with my life instead of obsessing over the appropriate way to accept compliments. I can't, yet, but I want to get better. What happens when you stop self-criticizing? For one week only, just while I was at work, I decided to force myself to accept compliments. I did not deflect. I did not qualify. I did not put myself down immediately after accepting it. I simply said, thank you, to anything nice that people said about me. If my success was partially due to someone else, I'd say thanks and acknowledge their hard work too. 
but I didn't say it was all them. If I didn't agree with a compliment, I still took it, choosing to believe that someone else's opinion could still be valid even if I didn't think it was true. In short, I tried to live for a week as though I could take credit when I did stuff well. My brain tried to convince me that any would-be complimenters were just being sarcastic or that I'd spectacularly fail the next time I tried at anything and embarrass myself. But you know what? I didn't spontaneously combust. I did not get fired. I didn't become amazingly self-assured either, and my self-esteem wasn't fixed overnight. But it felt good to accept that I might be good at some things. I didn't get better at believing it yet, but it did start to feel more natural to simply accept and move on. I hope in time I'll find it easier to believe compliments and not just give lip service to the idea. Compliments can feel like just a minor form of social interaction. We all say them, we all receive them, but I believe that just as important as learning to give one is learning to take one. Okay, who identified with Zuli? Were you cringing when you heard her story or shaking your head in agreement? Or both? Human nature is so bizarre, isn't it? Have you ever met someone who is self-confident? Not cocky, just comfortable with themselves. You never hear a self-deprecating word out of their mouth. Just like you never heard them boast about what they have or what they've done. They're just genuine and at peace. So refreshing and inspiring. It's not a mirage, but a daily commitment and practice. Dr. Shauna Waters explains in her article, the path to self-acceptance paved through daily practice, found at betterup.com. A lack of self-acceptance can hold you back in every area of your life. It affects your confidence and can prevent you from reaching your full potential. People with high self-acceptance are more resilient to criticism. They understand that it's okay to accept themselves while also working for continuous self-improvement. But what is self-acceptance really? And why are some people more self-accepting than others? How can it help you? And what can you do to cultivate more of it? Let's find out. Self-acceptance is the act of accepting yourself and all your personality traits exactly as they are. You accept them no matter whether they're positive or negative. This includes your physical and mental attributes. Self-acceptance means recognizing that your value goes beyond your personal attributes and actions. This is sometimes known as radical self-acceptance. Self-acceptance gives you more confidence in yourself and makes you less vulnerable to criticism. It means to deeply and totally accept every aspect of yourself unconditionally and without exception. Doesn't that sound a little scary? I mean, if you struggle with self-doubt, imagine fully accepting yourself, flaws and all, just as you are. 
To achieve self-acceptance, you must learn to accept the parts of yourself you consider negative or even undesirable. It's also important to acknowledge and celebrate your positive qualities and achievements. Reviewing your goals and your progress on them reminds you of your strengths. This is why so many of us struggle with self-acceptance. We tend to hide, neglect, and reject the parts of ourselves we consider unacceptable. We'd rather change them than accept them. Although it might seem counterintuitive, total self-acceptance can actually help us change the aspects of ourselves that we might be less than fond of. Having an awareness of our limitations is the first step on the path of personal growth and is a sign of emotional intelligence. Self-acceptance doesn't mean accepting our negative qualities and giving up on changing them. On the contrary, it means being aware of our weaknesses without having any emotional attachment to them. This self-awareness can help us improve our behavior and build better habits. Research shows that self-acceptance is fundamental for our overall mental health and well-being. Isn't it worth the work? The evidence seems to indicate a direct link between low levels of self-acceptance and mental illness. But there are other ways that low self-acceptance affects your daily life, work, relationships, and well-being. And here are five examples. One, self-acceptance helps you control your emotions. A lack of self-acceptance can affect the part of your brain responsible for controlling your emotions. This can lead to mental imbalance and emotional outbursts as a result of elevated anxiety, stress, or anger. A lack of self-acceptance limits your capacity for happiness. It also affects your psychological and emotional well-being. It keeps you focused on the negative aspects of yourself, and these negative thoughts create negative emotions. By contrast, high levels of self-acceptance are linked to more positive emotions and greater psychological well-being. Number two, self-acceptance helps you forgive yourself. Learning to accept yourself helps you be less self-critical. It helps you create a more positive, compassionate, and balanced view of yourself. According to Dr. Srini Pillay of Harvard Medical School, acceptance and forgiveness go hand in hand. He says that the inability to accept and forgive ourselves causes us to split into different parts. These two parts, the one that needs to be forgiven and the one that needs to forgive, are at odds with one another. Self-acceptance can help bridge the gap between them, enabling you to forgive yourself for your mistakes and move on. This is essential for your well-being, as dwelling on the past will keep you stuck in a cycle of negative thoughts and emotions. Number three, self-acceptance gives you more self-confidence. Self-acceptance can give you more confidence about yourself. It helps you understand that your perceived negative qualities don't define your worth. When you're confident, you're more likely to take action in spite of your fears. In contrast, a lack of self-acceptance can hold you back and stop you from going for your dreams. Self-acceptance helps you realize that failure doesn't define you and is always a learning opportunity on the path to success. Number four, 
Self-acceptance leads to self-compassion. According to self-compassion researcher Kristen Neff, self-compassion is more important for our mental and emotional well-being than self-esteem. She describes self-compassion as giving yourself the same kindness and care you would to a friend. And anyone who struggles to accept themselves will agree that we tend to be our own worst enemies. Cultivating self-compassion can help you be kinder to yourself when you fail and make you more resilient to setbacks. Number five, self-acceptance helps you be yourself. When you lack self-acceptance, you're constantly trying to hide, censor, or repress your true self. This can leave you feeling drained. Self-acceptance can help you show up more authentically without worrying about others' judgments of you. Essentially, when you accept yourself, you feel free to be your whole self. There is a difference between self-esteem and self-acceptance. Don't confuse the two, although people often use the two terms interchangeably. Here are five self-acceptance exercises. True self-acceptance doesn't just happen overnight. Daily practice and self-care can help you gradually increase your level of self-acceptance over time. These self-acceptance exercises will teach you how to practice self-love and acceptance every day. Number one, there is a reason why you hear this over and over again. Practice gratitude. Don't just take it as a bumper sticker. Every day, write down three to five things that you're grateful for. This can seem challenging at first, especially if you have a mental habit of focusing on the negative. But practicing gratitude every day can help you retrain your brain to focus on the positive. Look for the silver lining of every seemingly negative situation. If you failed at something, be grateful for the lessons learned. Look for things about your perceived flaws to be grateful for. I know that can sound difficult, but remember, this is a practice. If you've always thought of it and never tried it, what's holding you back? Number two. Reframe your negative thoughts. Negative beliefs are the voice of your inner critic. They cause a lot of suffering and prevent you from reaching unconditional self-acceptance. Reframe your negative beliefs about yourself by writing them down. For example, if you believe you're a bad person for something you did in the past, write it down. Once you've written your list, go through each belief and reframe it. Start by challenging each statement by asking, is that true? Then replace each statement with more positive self-talk. For example, I'm a good person, but I'm only human, so I sometimes make mistakes. Number three, choose your support system. Make a list of people you spend the most time with. Think about the way they speak to you. Are they mostly positive or negative? Identify those who are mostly negative and ask yourself if it would be possible to spend less time with them. Perhaps you could even eliminate them from your life completely. This is not always possible, such in the case of a close family member, but try to remove as many negative people from your life as possible. Surround yourself with positive people who appreciate you and lift you up. Number four, meditate. A regular meditation practice can help you detach from your negative self-talk. This can improve your mood 
and lead to more positive emotions. The goal of meditation is to become aware of those thoughts, observing them without identifying with them. Mindfulness practices such as meditation increase psychological well-being and promote an inner peace. This helps you reduce self-criticism and improve your self-image. Number five, forgive yourself. Forgiveness for past mistakes and regrets is an essential step towards self-acceptance. Use this self-forgiveness exercise to overcome past mistakes. It will remind you that you're only human and you did the best that you could. This will help you let go of regret and move on. Think of a situation, action, or mistake for which you would like to forgive yourself. Identify any judgments of yourself relating to that situation and write them down. For example, you might write, I should have done X. I'm so stupid. Next, forgive yourself for that belief. Write down something like, I forgive myself for believing I'm stupid. The truth is, and then fill in the blanks. Think about what a compassionate friend might say about you. It could be something like, I was stressed because, or I was hurting and made a decision based on that hurt. To share encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they are not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, take action today to get your life back on track and heading in a new direction. Phase two means reimagining life and you're in charge of the process. Enlist a trusted friend to get you over the hump of self-doubt and down the path of self-acceptance. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone's through until the path was clear. That's when I found you.